0: The Making Sense of Life podcast, number 50. According to J.K.
1: Rowling, life is difficult and complicated and beyond anyone's total control. The humility to know that will enable you to survive its vicissitudes. The Making Sense of Life podcast will not only empower you to navigate through a fast changing world, but also to grow in body, mind and spirit inward change precedes outer transformation as the ancient greek author plutarch once said what we achieve inwardly will change outer reality this podcast is sponsored by
0: logos medical legal sunil also works privately with senior leaders go to drsunil.com forward slash corporate to find out more
1: Hello and welcome to the Making Sense of Life podcast with me, Sunil Raheja, as we continue to make sense of life in what is a complex and challenging world. We're on podcast number 50. We've reached a half century and we're continuing our conversation uh, with Professor John Wyatt on his book um, simply titled Dying Well. If you've not listened to podcast 49, uh, th- that will be the introduction there, looking at this important issue about well, death, and and what it means not just to die well, but to live well. Um, I encourage you to to go back to that one, because John and I discuss issues around the opportunities that dying well gives. Um, Again, it's not a, a subject that we talk about very often, and John has very helpfully opened this subject up to us in a way that is both sensitive and compassionate but also full of deep wisdom and insight so it's great to have you back again john
0: thanks very much it's good to be here
1: so john as we continue our conversation um last time as i said we talked about some of the opportunities that dying well brings and that this strange kind of adventure
0: Yes. um, So as we talked about before, if you ask most people how they would like to die, the commonest answer you get is, I just want to go out like a light. I don't want to have any kind of warning, no premonition, just die in my sleep. What a wonderful way to go. And I'm convinced that actually that isn't the best way to die because actually to have the opportunity to prepare ourselves for those final days, weeks and months can actually be a very positive thing. There's lots of things that we can learn. And and I've seen at first hand how life-changing those kind of those last events of days and weeks can be, but of course it isn't all straightforward, and there are challenges um, to face as we as we look towards the end of life, and of course many of us may also be caring for people like like our parents um or uh close friends or relatives who are close to death and we ourselves are wondering how on earth can we support people as they come to this last phase of their lives
1: and just to uh just to in a sense recap what we've talked about before because uh, as i said on podcast 49 we've opened up, opened up this subject uh, as well as on podcast 17 which is about um right to die and the whole area of, around euthanasia uh, but john you're, you're um a uh, Emeritus Professor of um, Neonatal paed- Paediatrics and you're also Senior Research Fellow at the Faraday Institute. You're married to Celia with three sons. And on the last podcast, we talked about how you're very interested in this whole area of, of medical ethics and, and understanding that not just from a medical point of view, but from a spiritual and ultimately Christian point of view.
0: Yeah, that's right. So my background is as a baby doctor and it was really through my work as a baby doctor paediatrician caring for some very sick and vulnerable babies that I started to think more and more about ethical issues of life and death and how as technology advances it raises new challenging issues. So I've now retired from the clinical practice but I'm still very much involved and concerned about the ethical issues to do both at the beginning of life and at the end of life. and. Um, I'm convinced that, you know, we've got a lot to learn Um, and also there's things we can learn from the past, you know, that yes, we live in a very rapidly advancing world, new challenges, but we also can learn from the wisdom of of people in the past, particularly as a Christian believer, I believe we can learn from the past in terms of, of how Christian believers have faced challenges of life and death hundreds of years ago
1: yeah and so building on that and obviously that's what you've researched in in this book dying well and we talked about the opportunities and we're going to concentrate on this podcast on the temptations that prevent us from dying well and as you said we need to learn from the past and one of the documents that you've looked and studied is something called the Ars moriandi from the, i think the 14th or 15th century tell us about that and why that's so relevant
0: yeah so the Ars Moriendi is latin and it just literally means the art of dying and it's well known in the history of the Church that these documents started circulating around um, the 14th and 15th century at a time when Europe was a very dangerous place. There was uh, the time of the Great Plague sweeping through Europe and um, people knew that plague could enter your village or town and, and people would be dying very rapidly within literally hours or days. There was great instability, warfare, and so on. And in the medieval church, one of the great fears was that somebody might die without a priest being present. And so these documents, The Art of Dying, started circulating and they were intended for lay people. They were a sort of self-help documents. Uh, Somebody said that if you were going to look for a modern equivalent, it might be something like dying for dummies.
1: I don't think that t- that would go down pretty well but I I know what, I know what you're getting at.
0: Yeah, yeah and so it's interesting because because m- most people were not able to read and write these documents um consisted of pictures uh showing a dying person on a bed and then there were sort of images of um demons who were tempting them and there were images of of the saints and of God himself. Uh, and and Jesus who were there, and it was all presented in a sort of pictorial format. Um, And in particular, they they looked both at the positive things about dying well, but also about particular temptations and challenges. And um, they came up with five particular challenges, Um, and they start with...
1: So, and and obviously i think these challenges would be the same how, how at any point in life whether the 15th century or the 21st century
0: well that's right you know because we're all the same under the skin and here are here are medieval uh, people facing the the challenge of death and possibly dying through plague and we live in a totally different world and yet i think we've got things to learn from From them and and so they came up with these five temptations that dying people could face and for each temptation there was a corresponding virtue there was something that dying people should learn to prepare themselves and uh, the first one was the temptation of doubt then there was a temptation of despair there was a temptation of impatience or I think a modern version might be petulance so petulance, by which you mean? I mean, uh, people who just get fed up with. Uh, sometimes in the process of dying, they just get very cross and angry and aggressive. That kind of thing, yes.
1: very, very grouchy and very
0: very negative. Yes, yeah. and it's uh, petulance is a sort of like, like a toddler who who throws all their toys out of the pram. Yeah. So it's yeah. it's a sort of rather childish response. Yeah.
1: So doubt, despair, petulance. Yeah.
0: Then there's a the temptation of pride, by which they actually meant spiritual pride. And then finally, there was a temptation of greed.
1: And I think you've added two more to that as well.
0: Yeah, so I, I think all of those five temptations are temptations which are actually very real for us here and now. But there are two additional ones which I think modern people face, uh, which really were not a feature back in the medieval age. And and so one of those is the, is the, the denial of death. I think that modern people are tempted by the idea that they can pretend that death doesn't exist. And finally, there's the temptation of self-reliance, that I can do it all myself and I don't need other people. So I think those are two modern temptations.
1: Okay, so the seven temptations in total. Um, let's try and... If you I mean, it's a lot to go through. But let's think about you know, the ones you think would, would be most helpful for us to think and consider about.
0: Yeah, okay, so if we just select... Um, a few of these, which might be interesting, just to to talk about. So the first one is the temptation of doubt. Um, and in the original Ars Moriendi, they had these pictures of the 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 dying person on a on the bed, and then there were demons whispering temptations like hell is prepared for you or kill yourself, and and one demon holds up a um a, a like a document a scroll which has clearly a whole list of all the evil things the person had done
1: so presented very, very graphically i think yeah when we think of uh, of art from that time as you said people can't read and write so you need to present it in a very graphic exactly. form for them to think and contemplate and and ponder over exactly. and, and bring truth to them
0: and then there's another very interesting thing and that is that there was in the picture god himself the father and the son were present uh At the side of the room, but the demons were holding up like a shroud a blanket, so that the dying person couldn't see ah, them okay so it was it was what wasn't a way visible of sort of obscuring the presence of god so I think you know let's and
1: so that's where the, the the doubt comes because the presence of God is is obscured, and so you Absolutely. think well what' I'm, what you know there's no hope here
0: yeah. there's no hope, and um in particular there's there's no faith, so i am now and and this is something that sometimes happens that doesn't always happen some people you know who've who've been say, believers and christians for all their life and they come to the end of their lives and it seems like they're very serene and happy and trusting god but there are other people who find suddenly as they face the end of their lives they're beset by real doubt and real questioning and it it may be they start to think does god really exist is you know is is all this religious stuff is it just based on a fantasy
1: and i suppose if we've got to be honest as it were then real life is like that at times you know things go wrong obviously ultimately the thing is you know facing death and then if you like my foundations are being challenged and doubt can easily creep in
0: yes and there's a sort of caricature about doubt da- of faith isn't there that faith is just believing things that aren't true but just um be- without any evidence now that is not what um christianity teaches about faith faith is reaching out for the truth whilst recognizing that we can't see it totally and therefore doubt is something that um, that many Christians perhaps most Christian believers face at some point. And
1: mind. so the antidote to doubt is not as you were clinching your teeth and battling through but it's honesty.
0: Exactly. So first of all I just need to be honest with myself and actually talk to myself about these doubts but I think it's also very helpful if I can find one or two trusted people that I can share these thoughts with and um, I was very moved by reading a poem written by Dietrich Bernhofer who was um, a wonderful Christian leader imprisoned by the Nazis and facing death by execution and he'd been a very powerful and strong Christian and yet he was beset by doubts Uh, in his prison cell. And he he wrote this whole poem called, Who Am I? You know, and he he contrasted the fact that sometimes he seemed to be so strong and confident, but at other times he was beset by doubts. And uh, he ends up, who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, you know, oh God, I am yours. So there's a sort of
1: giving of oneself with all one's doubts and frailties and fears to the everlasting father, to the loving father, trusting that he can make sense of it.
0: That's right, and and I think that um, by, the strange thing is that by recognizing our doubts, sometimes it leads us to a deeper, and more honest trust in God and his goodness. So as we trust in God, it's not about fixing our problems, but it's recognizing that even in our emptiness that that God can be there. Um, One of the things that I found quite helpful is that um, John Stott, who was a very well-known preacher and Christian leader of the past, used to say that when he thought about what it meant to be a Christian, he had in his head a brand image of a Christian. And what what it was was somebody kneeling at the communion rail and holding out their hands to receive the bread and the wine.
1: So yeah, the the, the body sorry, the, the bread representing the body of Christ, and the wine representing the blood of Christ that's given at communion.
0: That's right, and the whole point about the person at the communion rail is that you don't have to do anything, you don't have to earn the right, to re- you just have to hold out your hands, and it's given to you. And of course, that's symbolic that in fa- that all faith is, is holding out our hands. Uh, holding out our hands to God and asking Him to to feed us, and in it, it's interesting that so participation in the Holy Communion, sometimes called the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, has actually been seen all the ta- all, all the way from the early Church as something that was very important as people faced death. That actually the symbolic thing of receiving Communion on your deathbed is a way of expressing your faith is being described
1: as sort of food literally food for the journey for for the ultimate journey
0: it's food for the journey and i think that that simple but very practical way of expressing our faith in god that we want to lift out our hands and say i want to receive this spiritual food i'm trusting in christ
1: now, in podcast 17 we talked about cicely saunders who was the founder of the hospice movement And you you point out that in hospice, the chapel is at the centre, which is, again, which is very unlike what we have in, say, modern hospitals.
0: Yes, so Cicely Saunders had this opportunity of building a custom-built hospice from scratch to her own design. And it's quite interesting the way she did it because I understand she put the chapel at the centre of the building and she put all the clinical areas around this central area and she designed it so that people in their beds could be pushed into the chapel however sick they were however close to death they could be pushed into the chapel and then every day there was a cycle of worship and prayer and the holy communion Mm -hmm. so as people were facing the end of their lives they were doing it in the context of a worshiping community and in the context of the holy communion
1: That's an amazing insight, which I think we've sort of forgotten in our modern world. And if we think about if the essence of the Christian faith is the death and ultimately resurrection of Jesus, then should that not be the focus of our attention as we leave this life?
0: I think that's right. And I think that um, this is something which the early Christians and, and in the medieval period was incredibly important to them, and perhaps in our sophisticated modern culture we uh, lose quite how significant and how real this this is in other words you know we're not just sort of disembodied spiritual beings we're physical beings and therefore what we do with our bodies matters and this physical act of taking our hands and reaching out and eating bread and wine is actually something profoundly significant
1: it's very helpful so the first temptation you said is is a temptation of doubt, and the antidote to that is honesty, bringing ourselves to God, and ultimately, faith. Faith, yeah, and faith in what Jesus has done for us on the cross, and as it were, embodying that through the blood, uh through the, through the wine and and the bread, um, representing the blood and body of Christ. Um, That's
0: right. So the second uh, temptation, perhaps, to move on to is is the temptation of despair. So if you like, if doubt is the loss of faith, despair is the loss of hope. And so in the images in these Ars Moriendi, The Art of Dying, um, the demons were often taunting the dying person with their own failure and with the fact that they were not going to be forgiven. and the implication is that the demons are telling the person, "Your situation is hopeless. There's no escape."
1: Yeah, so despair, as you said, the ultimate loss of hope, and yeah, we can't live without. We, we, to lose hope is is the ultimate tragedy.
0: Yes, and and one of the things I've noticed is that for some people, as they're facing their own death and dying, there's often despair is mingled with regret. In other words. What I'm thinking is, you know, if only I'd spent more time with my children, if only I hadn't allowed my marriage to fail, if only I hadn't wasted my life, but and as they're facing death they're thinking this is it you know i've 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 just thrown away my life, and now I'm going to die, so I think that um this this issue of despair is is something which which is often mingled with regret. But I th- I, there's also another aspect to it, and that is I've met, maybe you have too, some older Christian people mm-hmm. who say, you know, I've had my life, I want to go to, to heaven or to glory, and I keep saying to God, take me, I've, I've had my life, I want to die, and I'm still here, and I can't understand it, why doesn't God take me?
1: So there's almost an anger and frustration, why am I still here,
0: I want to be rid of this body and just, and just, just get out. But I think... It, it actually, What's wrong with that? Well, I think... I mean, it sounds very spiritual. Mm. But actually, I think it's a, it's a form of despair. What it's saying is, I've nothing more to learn. I've nothing more I can give. And my life on Earth is a complete waste of time.
1: And and I'm the one who, who's decided that. And I'm not trusting that God has got a a, a plan or there's something that I don't see.
0: Exactly. I know that there's I've nothing more to learn. I know that my life is a waste of time. And you know, I think gently, if somebody says that to us, we have to sort of say, well, actually, if you're still here on earth, that means either you've got more to learn, or you've got more to give and help somebody else. And um, so I think the answer to despair is to recover our sense of hope. Mm -hmm. Um, But it starts with being honest, doesn't it? That I have to be honest about these feelings of regret and hopelessness, mm-hmm. but then I need to share this with others. So we need we
1: need community. We need the church community. We need other um, uh, believers around us who can encourage us to to turn to God in hope.
0: Yeah, and and you know sometimes I'm afraid um, church community is not very good at this. We we don't want to talk about our doubts we don't want to talk about our despair because we think people are going to criticize us they're going to shun us they're going to say oh what a terrible christian you are so it's
1: a lack of and somehow i'm lacking faith i need to pray more i need to try harder which again is not really what the gospel is about and
0: exactly so i i can just burden myself more and more get trapped in this this spiral of hopelessness so i think that we need to share with others and we need to allow others to exercise faith and hope for us Um, so one of the things I think which is very interesting but also quite strange about these medieval documents is they they talked about meditating on the figure of Christ on the cross so something that the dying person should do is actually think about Christ on the cross and identify with them, and this sounds very strange to modern ears. I mean, we we don't want to think about the cross. The cross is a horrible, painful spectacle. Um,
1: but 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 is there something that about seeing Jesus suffering, no matter how much I'm suffering, seeing that he identifies with the pain I'm going through, and he's on that on the cross, he's on that journey to death, and so he knows what i'm going through and in fact he's probably he's going through more pain and more agony than i ever will have to face
0: that's right and there is a sort of strange and mysterious sort of solidarity and identification with jesus you know that the god we worship is not a god who is distant from suffering a god who just floats in this eternal realm Uh, but but we we worship a god who has entered into the extremes of suffering And then mysteriously, what the Bible teaches is that in some strange way, we can share in his sufferings. Mm. Um, Again, this sounds very strange uh, language to modern Christians. We so often emphasize, you know, health and Mm. blessing and healing. And everything going well. Everything being going well. But... The Apostle Paul says, "What what was this? What was the Apostle Paul's greatest hope? He says that I might know Him, talking about Jesus, and the power of His resurrection, and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death."
1: Okay, um, and yeah, and again, so that, that this issue of understanding the suffering of Christ through the suffering that I'm going through.
0: I think there's something else and that is there is what some people have called a discipline of hope. So G.K. Chesterton, a very well-known writer for previous generation, he wrote that there were two sins against Christian hope. There was the sin of presumption, presuming that everything's going to go really well, and there was a sin of despair. And both of those, interestingly, Chesterton says, their are sins, they're actually not compatible with Christian hope, because Christian hope is grounded in truth and in reality. Mm-hmm. And so instead of these sins of presumption and despair, you know, and, it, and it's possible that some people are more prone to presumption and to think. And by presumption,
1: we mean so it's assuming on God.
0: Yeah, everything's going to be fine. I know that God's going to bless me. I can trust him. Everything's going to be fine. Or the sin of despair that says, actually, it's all going to go wrong. I know that things are never going to get mm-hmm. sorted. Things are never going to go well. Both of those, in their different ways, are sins, but what we call to is to practice the discipline of christian hope and the the fact it's a discipline means it's something we choose every day i choose to believe in god's faithfulness and to choose that he can uh, hold me and transform yeah.
1: even though i can't maybe not see it and, and you, there's a lovely little short little um poem as it were from um I think, from the Second World War that uh, that, that right. illustrates this.
0: So th- this comes out of the Jewish ghetto where Jews were hiding, desperate in their, for their lives, uh, just waiting for the Nazis to find them. And after the end of the Second World War, these war- words were found scrawled in a cellar, and it said, I believe in the sun, even when it's not shining. I believe in love, even when I don't feel it. I believe in God even when he is silent. So I think that's an example of the discipline of Christian hope. Are we prepared to trust and to to look, to believe in the sun, even when it's not shining?
1: And we talked in, in podcast 49 about um, about sleep and nighttime And when it's dark in, at midnight, it can appear that it's going to be dark forever and ever. But we know through faith that the sun will rise tomorrow and... You know, and assuming it's a sunny day, that, that the sun will be shining as brightly as it was dark um, at just twenty-four, just just twelve hours earlier. So, and just just to add as well, we talked about uh, hope in podcast thirty-one. Uh, if you want to explore that more, but John, let's just move on in terms of we talked about two of the temptations, and as you can see, this is very rich. So, and there's a lot to say. Um, so we're we're only going to, as it were, cover a few of the temptations, and I encourage you to. Look to to get the book and there'll be a, a link uh, to the book that goes with the show notes that, that go with this podcast um, the other one which we want to talk about is so we talked about the, the temptation of um, of of uh, doubt the temptation of despair but also the temptation which is a very modern one the denial of death tell us about that
0: yeah, so we've looked at two ancient temptations, and then maybe we should look at these two modern temptations: the the denial of death. Now, I think that modern medicine and healthcare can give us almost a delusion that we can keep death at bay uh, for as long as we like. You know, we we see disease as an enemy to be fight to fight against, and I remember you
1: said that in America, the most popular quote at the end of uh, Bible verse used is, I fought the good fight on people's tombstones or something like that?
0: It was, now it was in the funeral uh, services. Uh, so they quote this verse from 2 Timothy, and the, the Paul's letters to Timothy, I fought the good fight. But uh, the funeral director said, actually, they're not talking about spiritual things. What they mean is that this person tried every medical option to stay alive. So this
1: denial of death... Yes, and, and this is by people who profess to believe in Jesus and profess to follow the Bible.
0: There may well be people who feel that because I'm a Christian, I have to fight against death. Um, a Christian doctor, John Dunlop, said this, Medicine is good, but not when we're shaking our fists in God's face mm. and saying, No, I'm not going to die yet. I'm trusting technology to pull me through. So I think this is another kind of temptation that we... Um, deny that death is going to happen and one of the things that I've often seen sadly is when there's a kind of pretense enters into people's relationships so the dying person doesn't want to admit that they might be dying so they're very positive when the relatives come or the doctors come they say oh I'm feeling much better doctor I'm sure you know the treatment is working and even though actually they're, they feel that they're losing ground and then the relatives enter into this sure are this this pretense and they say oh yeah you you are looking much better and i'm sure everything's going to be fine and so everyone gets trapped in this game of yeah. pretense instead of really being honest and saying look the truth is you are uh, about to die and we need to be honest about this and
1: and that's probably because our theology our understanding of life is all about investing in this world and nothing else maybe and, and
0: well, I think that's right. That I think that it's very easy to be some, so preoccupied with the present, with our physical and material life, and our you know experiences from day to day, that we've really lost the sense of what might happen beyond the grave.
1: So this is a very deeply problem in our culture, in our minds, for all of us, um, you and I included, <laughs> that we're very preoccupied with this world. We, you know, I think there's a quote from Woody Allen: "I'm not afraid of dying. I just don't want, don't want to be there when it happens." And so this denial of death, what's the antidote? Is there an antidote?
0: Well, I think it's, it's, it's being real, that, that actually the bodies that God has given us are bodies that are frail and dependent, and particularly in Christian thinking, we live in a fallen world, and death is an enemy, and our bodies are affected by death. So acknowledging the reality of death that that's wisdom. Mm. And recognizing that we can't hold off death forever, but in fact, through the Christian hope, what we believe is that death can be destroyed. There is a hope that goes beyond the grave. Mm. Um, but we need wisdom to, to accept that death is happening. And I think that means that we have to, there is a time to say, no, I don't want any more treatment. Yes, I know the doctor is offering me some new treatments or some new experimental drug or is talking about maybe we should admit you to the intensive care unit and there is a time to say actually I'm ready to go.
1: And we see that in the life of Jesus don't we?
0: Well it's one of the extraordinary things when it's often not talked about or preached about but if we look and in the life of Jesus what we see is that in the Gospel narratives, in all four of the Gospel narratives, in the first half of the Gospels, Jesus is very much an active, dynamic figure. He's the one who chooses where he's going to go. He heals people. He proclaims the truth. Uh, He's a very active figure. And then in the Gospel narratives, there's a point when he is handed over, betrayed uh, into the hands of his enemies, at that point he becomes passive. Uh, He becomes the one to whom people do things to him. And in fact the old English phrase, the passion of Christ, literally passion is a word which means um, it's related to passive, it means to be done to. And so uh, the extraordinary thing is that Jesus allows himself to be um, to be passive in the hands of others and uh, it has been suggested and I think very wisely that this is this is Jesus is being a model to us that there is a time to allow um, to learn from uh, dependence on on others
1: to commit oneself to, to God at that point and to to, to life to come.
0: Exactly. And so the corresponding virtue for the den- denial of death is the, is the Christian virtue of acceptance. We accept the and trust in the goodness and grace of God. I mean, it's interesting that Christian acceptance is not the same as as a passive resignation, of just being resigned. You know, well, there's nothing I can do, this is going to happen. That's a sort of resi- res- resignation. That's not... Ah, uh, Christian. Yes. So, so a glum foreboding, and that's it. That's yeah. right. It's 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 not stoical or fatalistic, uh, nor is it a kind of detachment where I just pretend, you know, this that suffering. This a, a very illusion, sort of Buddhist kind of theory. thing that, that it's all illusion. It's all Maya. So I just I just have to sort of realize that my suffering is an illusion. A, a Christian understanding of acceptance is is founded on trust, a living and personal trust in the goodness and the grace of God. And that's what Jesus is doing as he gives himself into the hands of others. It's because of his trust in his Father that he is able to let go.
1: So I glorify God by living actively for him in in a world of injustice and suffering and moving forward. But I also glorify God in committing myself to him and, and trusting him in my suffering and weakness and ultimately dying.
0: And the most powerful Example of this in Jesus's life is that incredible prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus prays, "Abba, Father," he uses that word "Abba," which is a word of a of trust and dependence, an intimate word, and he says, "All things are possible from you. Please remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will." So, mm. it's 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 that, that prayer of trust. Mm. Um, which is at the heart of it. Yeah, that's
1: very, very helpful. Uh, you said there's one more modern, one more modern temptation as well. Just tell us about that.
0: Yeah, so the, the final temptation, which I think modern people um, are prone to, is the temptation of self-reliance. You know, it's it's the idea that I do it my way. I don't want to depend on others. I was what philosophers called. I believe in autonomy which means literally I make my own rules.
1: And that's very, very relevant to our society and culture and and modern age.
0: Well, it's very much the spirit, isn't it? The zeitgeist of the modern world. And we see it a lot in the world of medicine, which puts so much emphasis on the right of every patient to choose. They they make their own choices. They live their own life. They have their own body. And the trouble is, is that if you overemphasize... This idea that I am the boss, I choose, I am leading my own life. Then dependence to become dependent on others is seen as the ultimate evil. It's seen as a terrible thing. So uh, it's seen as threatening and dehumanizing. Mm. So you've
1: got, but what's what's the challenge there? How do we deal with that?
0: Well, the virtue is is uh, is the virtue of dependence that actually accepting the fact that uh, we are called to depend on others is not an evil thing, it's not a dehumanizing thing, it's actually part of what God is calling us to. And again we see in Jesus that although he was the Son of God and was a, the Christian faith teaches he's the one on whom the whole of the creation depends, yet actually he allows himself to become a baby he is utterly and totally dependent on the love and care of others. Uh he needs to be washed and he needs to have his bottom wiped and he needs to be fed. And on the cross the god of This is, is t- the yeah the god of the universe needs the to yeah. yeah, the god of the universe. I mean, we're so familiar with the Christmas story that we've actually forgotten how utterly scandalous it is. I mean, you know, the 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 old philosophers of the uh, the Greek age, they were appalled by this Christian narrative, you know, they just thought it was disgusting that the idea that the God of the universe turns himself into a pathetic baby. Mm. But there's a profound truth there that um, dependence doesn't change our dignity or our status, you know, that Jesus is still the one that people worship. He is still the one who is upholding the universe, even when he's a baby in that stable in Bethlehem.
1: And you've got a very personal illustration of that with your mother, haven't you as well, John?
0: Yes, I mean, it's a story I've told before. But um, my mother was a very vivacious and active lady uh, all her life. But then towards the end, she was struck down with a very horrible kind of dementia. And uh, she became transformed in front of her eyes. She became dependent. Uh, She required 24-hour nursing care. She was confused. She could do nothing for herself. And near the end, I was visiting her and somebody thrust a yoghurt pot and a teaspoon into my hand and I was trying to feed her and I was saying, open your mouth, open your mouth, here it comes, open your mouth. Mm -hmm. And then I suddenly had this flashback. This was precisely what she used to do for me. And uh, I remember thinking very distinctly at that moment, you know, this is the way it was meant to be. I was learning more of what it meant to be a son and she was learning more of what it meant to be a mother because dependence is, is part of the story. Mm. And I think one that's one of the lessons maybe that we have to learn as we face the end of our lives. Um, maybe we think we could retain control right to the very end, but perhaps God has more to teach us and he has to teach us that even in dependence, there is something that we can learn more of what it means to be human. Mm
1: thank you that's very very powerful so we've we've talked about the temptations of uh of not dying well um from this ars moriandi from this 15th century 14th century medieval doc uh, medical document would you say
0: mm-hmm. yeah there were a whole series of documents they were all versions of this yeah. they all had the same basic theme
1: and we talked about doubt and despair the um the denial of death and then this this desire to, to be dependent uh, as well as how we can through Christ and through our faith and through understanding um what God is calling us to, how we can come away from that and see death more as a strange kind of adventure and with lots of opportunities and that we talk about in podcast number forty nine but let's start, if we try and bring this all together, I know um How can we bring this together, John?
0: Well, I think, you know, the the very very famous psalm, the 23rd psalm, which uh, so many people know, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want, I shall not be in need. Um, That's a verse and a psalm which is very often used, again, which has meant a great deal to so many dying people because it has that line, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. Mm. Your rod and your staff, that's the shepherds, yeah. rod and staff, they comfort me.
1: So, And it's interesting, isn't it? Because the staff could be used to hit the sheep as well, to get it, to get it in the right place. So there's a, there's, a, there's a sense of discipline. There's a sense of going through things you don't want to go through and a frustration for the sheep.
0: Yes, that's right. I mean, it's not necessarily a comfortable thing. And going through the valley of the shadow of the death, I mean, we have to be honest and say yes there is there is a valley and god may well be calling us each one of us to walk that valley but we do it knowing that christ himself the good shepherd is there to walk with us and then there's that wonderful final verse that says surely goodness and mercy will follow me and actually the literal meaning of the hebrew is that they will pursue me Mm. they will dog my steps So it's
1: pursuing love of God.
0: Yes. Whatever I do, goodness and mercy is going to dog my steps. It's going to pursue me, uh, even as I go through the valley of the shadow of death. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So there is, you know, in that wonderful psalm, which has meant so much to millions of people, there is, uh, to encapsulate, uh, we are called, we may be called to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but we do it knowing that the good shepherd is with us and that goodness and mercy will pursue us all the way until we dwell in the house of the Lord forever.
1: Thank you, John. And we'll have a a link to Psalm 23 in show notes that go with this uh, podcast at com. Wow, what a deep subject, but I think such an important subject for us to to think and reflect. And whether you are yourself uh, facing the reality of death in your life or a loved one or someone you know well uh, who is facing death, uh, our prayer and hope is that Things that we've talked about, and this book, Dying Well, uh, by John White, available um, from all good bookstores. Uh, there'll be a link again uh, with the show notes to to the book uh, that you can get um, so that you can get a copy. And thank you, John.
0: Well, thanks, and all it's been great to share with them these deep but uh, really important topics. <music> If you've enjoyed today's conversation, you can get all the show notes for this episode from drsunil.com. And could you do us a favor, head over to iTunes to rate the program. This is by far the best way to get this content into the hands of those who need it most. Also, do you think about who you could pass details of the podcast on to. Don't forget to check out the blog for more great content. That's drsunil.com, helping you to make sense of life in a challenging and complex world. Until next time, goodbye for now.